Oh, great song there. Of course, Eurovision Song Contest tonight. You'll be watching it, won't you, Daniel Mumby? Don't care. Absolutely don't care. And I'm glad that that was as short as it was. Get a little bit nearer to the microphone, Daniel. I can't hear you. You sure? That's got it, yes. Right. I think so, yes. yes. What I said wasn't that important anyway. <laughs> it's, we were um, sort of chattering during the news about the FA Cup final. I was saying my heart is with Stoke City because it used to be my dad's club. My head probably with Manchester. What's your thoughts? Um, in terms of the result or who I think should win? <laughs> Whichever. Um, I think Stoke should win. I think the result will be determined by how well they defend in the first half. It'll either be sort of an odd goal or 3-0 Man City. Right, yes. Uh, can we just also, um, a little film-related announcement, if I may. Yeah, of course, um, yes, it's a film hour. Yeah, if you're <laughs> very quick, as in you're willing to, uh, make the trek to Newcastle, uh, the Tyneside Cinema are doing a screening at 12 noon of Spirited Away, which, for my money, is the best animated film of the last ten years. Oh, right. So, yeah, and it's a use certificate so anyone can go. Right. And what time's that starting? 12 o'clock. Oh, right, so people do need to, well, listen to us at least halfway down the A1. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyway, welcome, Daniel. It's good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be here You've once again. You've been all over the place, haven't you, this week? I got back from London at 11 o'clock last night. Right. Well, we'll uh, see if we can stay awake through the hour. Yes, that should be okay. Usual things, the uh, top ten, and then our cult classic this week is going to be Angel Hearts. Yep, Alan Parker coming back again. Right, and then we'll have a look at the new releases, so usual things. Um, right, top ten, um, new in, I guess, at number ten, Hop. New in? It's been there it? for a few weeks. That's it. Oh, well. Do you actually do any research for this show? <laughs> <laughs> Try not to, no. <laughs> Well, it's on the way out, and, it, you know, it's it's out-of-date rubbish. No, there's nothing much more to say. Yeah. One that we talked about last week at number nine, Arthur. Which is slightly less rubbish, but obviously nowhere near as good as the original. Um, I mean, it's, one of the things I noticed, actually, when I was down in London, I was passing a multiplex near where I had um, this job interview, which I can't talk much about, obviously, because the result is still pending. Um, but it's one of the things in the publicity campaign. In the original round of posters, there were sort of... It was Russell Brand sitting in front of three women, Helen Mirren, uh, Jennifer Garner, who's sort of playing the, the rich girl role, and this actress called Greta Gerwig, who is a sort of American indie actress who's sort of sort of became famous in a film called Greenberg, and she's sort of playing the Liza Minnelli role. And then the sort of new round of posters that they brought out, she's not on them, and she's actually not in the trailer, and on the posters she's just been replaced with, like, a hovering bowler hat and a sort of well, René Magritte thing. So yes. it's that sort of tells you all you need to know. It's, like, the most important bit of the film, which is the actual proper romance as opposed to falling in love with a rich person. Yeah. They haven't felt the need to advertise it. How weird. Yeah. Yes. Right, number eight is Priest. Which is surprisingly dull. I mean, it's made by the same guy who directed Legion, um, which was sort of stupid but incredibly good fun, and Paul Bettany's a magnetic screen presence, but it is just a bit sort of plodding, and it sort of recycles a lot of... No, obviously there's a connection to the vampire myth about sort of vampires rejecting God, which has been done loads and loads of times, particularly in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, which is completely insane. But, yeah, it's, it's not terrible, it's just a bit sort of... Hmm... It's a shame, because Paul Bettany is such a good actor. He is. I mean, I, I still think his best performance is A Beautiful Mind, but he is a really charismatic screen presence. Yes, indeed. Right, number seven, we've got Rio. Which is perfectly decent. No, it's 3D animation from the makers of Ice Age, and the design's pretty good. I don't think it needed to be in 3D, but, you know, it's okay. Right. It's um, I'm actually looking at a different website this week. I've had to do my research from slightly different sources, so uh, seeing some scores on here, I guess uh, this website at least doesn't like something borrowed. 
we should, should we say which website you're yes, referring to? RottenTomatoes.com if you want to follow this. Yes, which I also blog on if you're interested. Um, yeah, it, it does borrow from a lot of previous um, rom-coms. I mean, the presence of Kate Hudson doesn't help matters when she does these kind of films. I mean, the best thing Kate Hudson ever did was um, the Cameron Crowe film, Almost Famous, in which she was, which is about sort of a band on the cusp of being great rock stars, and she plays a sort of ditzy groupie, and she does that rather well. But she has sort of got into, like so many Hollywood actresses, just the knack of doing effectively the same film over and over again. It's, again, not terrible, but it's sort of in one ear and out the other. Okay, number five... <coughs> Slightly better marking here, Hannah. Yeah, which is an interesting, if uneven, thriller. It's possibly Joe Wright's best film, if nothing else, because it isn't quite so ponderous in parts as some of his literary adaptations. Apparently his next film is going to be Anna Karenina, and I'd, it'll be interesting to see whether he'll be working with Saoirse Ronan again. Um, that should be quite interesting, shouldn't it? It should be. I mean, it's a very... It's a good book. It is a very... It's a very hefty tome, though, Anna yes. Karenina, isn't it? Because it's, um, it's Tolstoy, isn't it? Yeah, we didn't get our bed for less than a thousand pages, did he? So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. The interesting fact about Tolstoy, because he had this massive... Um, just to you know, digress for a second, he had this massive uh, farm in the middle of, well, whichever part of Russia he lived in. But because he was a sort of old-fashioned agrarian socialist, he insisted upon writing for 12 hours a day, so he did the same amount of work as his farm labourers. So it's right. sort of balanced out. Yes. But yeah, Hannah, it's... It is uneven. I mean, there's sort of bits of it that sort of don't work and it doesn't gel, but Saoirse Ronan, the lead actress, is really terrific. And as with The Lovely Bones, even if nothing else about the film works, it's worth seeing just for her performance, because she is going to be a really great actress when she sort of turns great. 21. Number four, Water for Elephants. Which is okay. I mean, it's an old-fashioned melodrama which sort of looks back to things like The Greatest Show on Earth, or I suppose, in a way, the work of Douglas Sirk from the 50s, although it's not quite as twisted as that. I mean, I think... It, it does depend upon how much affection you have for those sorts of films. If you're someone who likes old-fashioned epic romances, not sort of Gone with the Wind-style epic, but more sort of Place in the Sun and uh, all those sort of early films with Elizabeth Taylor and Shelley Winters and Montgomery Clift, that sort of thing, then you will find this charming. If not, I think you're going to be a bit irritated by every scene which doesn't feature Christoph Waltz. But it's perfectly okay. Okay. Number three, Insidious. And the central problem with Insidious is that it isn't scary. I mean, there's a very good bit at the beginning when sort of, you know, because it's about it's a creepy kid film where, you know, there's a, a scene of the bedroom door opening and there's a demon maybe in there, and that's a bit sort of creepy. But after that, it sort of just rips off loads of loads of, you know, the great pedophobic horror movies of the 60s and 70s, pedophobic meaning fear of children. So my advice is if you want a film which has got a really creepy kid in, go and get either the original version of The Omen or the original version of Village of the Damned, because they're much scarier. Okay, number two is Fast Five. It is what it is, and no, it's it's dumb, it's over the top, and it's an unnecessary sequel, but it's sort of good fun in an empty-headed kind of way. Right, and number one, I think it was number one last week, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so it was. Can you remember his script from last week? It was <laughs> Thor. Yeah, it's it's utterly ridiculous in a good way. We sort of touched on a comparison with Flash Gordon last yes, week. Yes, we did, didn't Which we? is very dangerous, considering just how good Flash Gordon looks, albeit in a slightly creaky way. I think it comes down to your views, not just on sort of comic books, but on Kenneth Branagh's output. I think that if you, if you like the inverted commas serious Kenneth Branagh, who made sort of the, um, the great version of Henry V or the four-hour version of Hamlet, then I think you might think he's he's lost his marbles a bit. But if you're someone who likes you know, his version of Frankenstein or the Magic Flute, which came out recently, which is you know, much more sort of high-camp, operatic, and deliberately sort of tongue-in-cheek, I think you'll find this really enjoyable. Incidentally, I was watching a clip from Frankenstein uh, the other day, and I'd forgotten that John Cleese is in it for about five minutes. Oh. He plays um, the smallpox doctor who gets sort of stabbed in the street, and Kenneth Branagh tries to revive him, and that's the thing that leads 
leads him to sort of do all the experiments that lead to the monster. Didn't remember that. No, yeah. he, he's only in it for like two or three minutes, but he, he sort of, I think he gets stabbed by someone with a wooden leg, which <laughs> sort of sets the tone for the film. Indeed, yes. And I see Kenneth Branagh's next stop, Coronation Street, have I read? I haven't read that. What's going yes, on? I think he's going to be uh, doing a little jobbing acting piece on it. Oh, right. As opposed to directing it, which yeah. would be, you know, <laughs> just mad. Yes, it would be, wouldn't it? No. This does not have to happen! No, no he's... That's uh, extended, sorry. Yeah, he's... Made uh, fool of myself. Yes, apparently he's joining the, um, the trail of, uh, major sort of movie actors who seem to want to do... Uh, little pieces on Coronation Street. Yeah, because Ian McKellen did it not so long ago, didn't he? Yes, yeah. and uh, blah, 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 uh, Nigel Havers, although he's not really a film star, is he? But it's a uh, chariots of fire. Thank you. <laughs> yes. yes. So uh, yeah, it seems to be the place to go. Yeah. Well, yes. um, like I say, Thor is it's utterly bonkers, but it's really good fun. Right. And, but you don't need to see it in three D. Okay. So your recommendations then? Out of the top ten, um, Thor for definite, and Hannah for definite, and then Water for Elephants. I think if you're under the age of 25 and sort of been brought up on sort of video games, you will lose patience with it, but everyone else will probably find it fine. Great. Well, there's a few films do you think to, about going to watch. Right. And of course, Spirited Away at 12. Yes, indeed. Cult film after another Eurovision winner. Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. Ah, oh, great Eurovision Song Contest winner there from quite a few years ago now. Can I put my headphones back on now? <laughs> yes. You're not into Eurovision, are you? I can't stand it. No. Oh dear, so I won't be asking you whether you think Jedward will win tonight. I couldn't care less, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, a few film reviews ago, feels like, yes, quite a few weeks ago, with one thing and another, we had um, Pink Floyd's uh, The Wall. We did. Uh, which was directed by Alan Parker, so time for another Alan Parker this morning. Indeed, because he's a very interesting filmmaker. Um, Angel Heart, which is a 1987 supernatural horror thriller based loosely on a novel called Falling Angel by William Hortzberg. Um, Alan Parker's a very interesting director. I mean, the, he's sort of described in a sort of industry. Do you know what a journeyman director is? No. Nah. A journeyman is a sort of um, a term for someone who doesn't have a particular style but can sort of go from different kinds of material and yeah. do a workable job. Um, and an, an auteur director, on the other hand, is someone who sort of always makes a very specific looking film, so there's a David yeah. Lynch film or a Stanley Kubrick film. Alan Park is kind of a mix of the two, because he has sort of, he's made an effort to make a film in almost every conceivable genre, and does justice to the material, but they also have a sort of very distinctive visual stamp. I mean, he's made... You just look at the films that he's made, the sort of the breadth of, you know, musicals, you know, Bugsy Malone, Fame, The Commitments and Evita, um, prison dramas like Midnight Express and um, The Life of David Gale, war films, Birdie, Come See the Paradise, and even stuff like, there's an oddball comedy he made in the 90s called The Road to Welver, which is about the Battle Creek sanatorium founded by John Harvey Kellogg, and Anthony Hopkins plays Kellogg with sort of a weird, really sort of strange accent and massive buck teeth, yeah. and that's a really sort of... <laughs> Odd yes. comedy, but very good. Um, so this is a, a cult film because it, it cost about seventeen million pounds, seventeen million dollars rather, and it sort of broke even on release. It didn't get very widely seen, but it has sort of built up a reputation over the last uh, twenty-five or so years. So the story is: um, 
Harry Angel, who's played by Mickey Rourke, way before he sort of came back to prominence with his uh, Oscar nomination for The Wrestler, uh, he plays a private detective who's working in New York City in 1955. One day he gets a client called Louis Cipher, who is uh, played by Robert De Niro in a special appearance, which means he's on screen for about ten minutes and gets paid a lot. Um, <laughs> That's what it usually means, yeah, isn't it? It's actually, it's actually in the credits as special appearance by Robert De Niro, so that's when you know you've arrived. Um, Cypher tells Angel that he's looking for a man called Johnny Favourite, who is a jazz singer who had a contract with him before World War II but has sort of disappeared off the face of the earth, and he offers Angel a substantial cash reward to find him. And as Angel conducts his investigations, he's led to New Orleans, and therein his world begins to fall apart as he gets caught up in voodoo and a series of murders, which he may be more involved in than he thinks. Right. So, how does that setup sound? It sounds interesting. Right. Now, if we were doing a sort of soundbite description of this film, it, it would go something like this. Imagine the tragical history of Dr. Faustus, the Christopher Marlowe play, as written by Raymond Chandler, with the supernatural threat of the Wicker Man, and directed by the guy who made Pink Floyd the Wall. Because it's that sort of, that's pretty much a way of encapsulating every so aspect of it. anything might happen in the next, uh two hours. Yeah, as they stay in Stingray, anything can happen in the next half hour. <laughs> yes. Um, the other way of describing it, we sort of encapsulate it, is that it is... Do you remember we talked about, um, Black Swan? Yes. In the January? Did yes. you ever see Black Swan in the end? No, I didn't in the end. No. no. It's a shame. It's, it's, yeah, uh, it is a shame, but it, it, it could be called the Black Swan of film noir, because both films sort of take... It's the same idea of taking sort of very familiar, well-worn genre elements yeah. and sort of cranking them up to a level of affectionate hysteria yeah. and again like Black Swan it's not a complete success but the experience of watching Angel Heart is very powerful as will become clear so on a basic level the film is like a throwback to the classic sort of original film noirs of the 30s and 40s I mean Mickey Rourke's performance although it does have a very original stamp there are clearly bits of him which are sort of trying to channel sort of Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney and all those original sort of yeah. the Sam Spade sort of character that sort of cropped up in Raymond Chandler's work a lot and it is that the plot is straight out of a classic gumshoe story. You know, it's you know the, the you know the down at his heels flatfoot who gets a job and you no know, he's you know it gets embroiled in various murky events. It turns out he might be involved. And when you sort of sketch it out like I did in the setup, it does seem like well, it's just another detective film. Um, but it's the thing that sort of makes it get away with it, so to speak, is that it's very much aware of its sort of place in the genre. It sort of. The film makes a number of references to other attempts at what's known as neo-noir, which is sort of taking the conventions of film noir and putting a new spin on them. I mean, there is, for instance, a direct reference to Chinatown about halfway through, where uh, Mickey Rourke is kind of interviewing a guy on a beach, and he puts a, a nose shield on a pair of sunglasses that he's got to sort of protect his nose, and it's a direct image of... Uh, you remember that famous image from Chinatown of um, Jack Nicholson yes. in the sunglasses yes. with a bandaged nose? Yeah. Well, it's, sort of, it's a sort of pastiche image of that, so it's very clearly aware of... You know, saying up front this is a detective film if you like that sort of thing it works if you don't yeah. look somewhere else the comparison with chinatown is quite relevant because they both in both cases they use sort of the conventions of pulp and film noir to sort of give their audience a grounding so that when they go off into more sort of well not necessarily indulgent but sort of fantastical elements yeah. you still feel like you've got something to hold on to because you no know, there's a mystery story going on in yeah. the midst of all this sort of political and social commentary in the case of chinatown um I don't think that this is as good as Chinatown, because very few things are. I mean, yeah. I'm a massive Polanski fan anyway, but that, for me, is the greatest film of the 1970s. Well, maybe second to Alien, but still. And the pleasure in watching Angel Heart comes less from sort of seeing 
this is a noir which then turns into this, as opposed to this is a film in which all the bits kind of fit together. I mean, there's just a, there's a sort of a pleasure in watching sort of everything add up in a very sort of intricate way. It's like you know, making a Swiss watch or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, the comparison between Pink Floyd the Wall is quite immediate because it is visually full on. I mean, it's the same sort of. It's shot by Michael Cerezin, who shot, who shot Pink Floyd the Wall and most of Alan Parker's films. And it's that same sort of contrast between um, the sort of pale, faded, washed-out colours of, of the, the normal realm or the earthly yeah. realm, which is sort of New York City. And then when they get to New Orleans, it's a little bit sort of brighter and more colourful. And then when the film sort of goes mad in its final elements, it's sort of really overcranked reds and blacks and sort of really prominent use of expressionist shadows. I mean, you remember the, um, the tunnel sequences at the end of The Third Man? Yes, yeah. Think that, but on a slightly smaller scale. Right. Um, and the visuals, I mean, there is also a connection, I suppose, with Dario Argento and the use of reds, but it's not quite so um, prominent. But what you have with the visuals, that because they're so sort of full-on and so sort of deliberately stylized, you it helps to create a film which is very sort of atmospheric. I mean, Robert De Niro is only in it for about ten minutes, but he's sort of... Every time he's on screen, they have these scenes which are sort of very, very quiet, like they'll meet in a deserted church, or they'll meet in a quiet cafe, or they'll meet in a, you know, an office yeah. that hasn't been used for like four or five years. So that every single syllable that Robert De Niro is mumbling along has a sort of unusual weight to it, and you feel unnerved, and that yeah. he sort of hangs over... Um, he sort of hangs over the film like um, the shadows on a Francis Bacon painting. You remember the, the triptychs of Francis Bacon where yes, it's the, yeah. the spectre of death wandering yeah. in like a shadow with horns. It's that sort of sense of, he's, I know he's not there physically, but I feel he's there and I'm not sure whether to trust him. I mean, on top of that, you have De Niro's very sort of threatening characterization, which is that he comes in with the sort of manicured fingernails which are very sort of pointy a massive beard and hair tied back which apparently is based on martin scorsese when he was a bit younger but he does that type of character very well doesn't he, he does i mean it's it was at a time in his career when he was sort of trying to get away from just being typecast as a mobster because earlier this year he'd done the untouchables in which he yeah. sort of played al capone and shaved all his hair off and put on loads of weight so this was sort of a way of saying actually i can do something else and he, he sort of He'd sort of done that a little bit when he took that supporting role in Brazil. You know, he, you know, he wanted to play the yeah. Michael Palin character in Brazil, the torture, but Terry Gilliam said, actually, my mate Michael's going to do that, so <laughs> you, can be, you can be one of the plumbers. <laughs> yeah. So you have this very sort of atmospheric performance for Robert De Niro. And the story of Angel Heart, as we sort of mentioned at the beginning, it's grounded in the myth or the tale of Faustus, which is you know, the classic story of man sells his soul to the devil in exchange for you know, material success, and you know, the central moral is... In order to get sort of success and attempt to be happy, he gives away the only thing that's truly his. Yeah. And I mean, there's sort of, depending upon which version of Faust you're familiar with, that there's the sort of the Marlowe version, which is which sort of ends with total damnation, and then there's the Goethe version from slightly later, which is he's he's about to be taken to hell, but then he remembers that somebody loved him and she prays for his soul, and so he gets sort of rescued at the last minute. I mean, it's it's. Yeah. I, I actually prefer the Goethe version, but the Marlowe version is, it has that sort of unrelenting darkness about it, which sort of fits with Angel Heart. The, there is a difference, however, in that the sort of the Faustian figure in Angel Heart, which is Johnny's favourite, there's two things that make him sort of different. The first is that you never see him on screen. He's sort of someone who's talked about, and we get sort of a recurring image of him being tapped on the shoulder in the street, and yeah. we don't see his face. Oh, right. But also, there's the idea that, I mean, in the Faust myth, to the best of my knowledge, Although Faustus is very sort of 
ruthless about pursuing sort of success and uh, wanting magical powers and so forth. He doesn't actually do anyone in to get them, whereas Johnny Favourite, and this is a line from the film, is as close to true evil as anyone wanted to come. And <laughs> as we discover, I don't want to give away the twist yeah. so much, but as we discover, that was going quite a long way to get what he wanted. Um, the film has, what makes it sort of unusual in terms of film noir, um, hard-boiled fiction is sort of film noir with gumshoe. It's very sort of pessimistic and, no, there's not much in the way of religion. Yeah. Or if there is religion, it's sort of talked about rather scathingly. Yeah. Um, but in Angel Heart, there is a lot of religious imagery, both sort of Christian imagery and the, you know, the examination of voodoo. I mean, some of this is is quite obvious because obviously the connections with Faust and you don't call characters Harry Angel and Lewis Cipher unless you know what you're yeah. doing, not to give away another twist. But there are also sort of more subtle things like there's the recurring image of chickens and eggs and the Mickey Rourke's character has a thing about chickens like he can't be around them and there's a sequence in one of the cafes where Robert De Niro is peeling a hard-boiled egg with just one of his fingernails and he talks about the egg being a symbol of the human soul. He offers it to Harry Angel, he refuses, and then Robert De Niro slowly eats the egg, which is creepy on its own. Yeah, I bet. But when you, yeah. when you sort of understand the twist at the end, you think, oh, that's actually really, that's actually yeah. really twisted. There are other little images as well. There are sort of recurring shots of sort of um, extractor fans and elevator doors. You remember the old elevator doors with the, the sort of metal grill that you yes. had to pull open yeah. by hand? It's, it's that sort of thing. And they around the time of each of the murders you get a sort of cut of one of these doors sort of opening in shadow and you know it takes sort of everyday ordinary objects well fans and lifts and sort of puts a sort of supernatural context on them a sort of death yeah. and descent into hell <laughs> <laughs> so just you know, if yeah. once you see the film you'll understand that and also on that subject it's one of a it's one of those films that you have to stay till the end of the end credits because there is a sort of cut between you know starring blah 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 and extra footage which shows no well there is a lift descending involved i mean if you know faust you know kind of what's going to what it's yeah. going to mean but i don't want to say it out loud in terms of the film's depiction of voodoo and this is where the comparison with the wicker man comes in I and mean, if you haven't um uh, if you didn't catch uh, paul and myself talking about the wicker man it's on the podcast section of the website very much like the wicker man the voodoo in Angel Heart is not supposed to be taken as sort of chapter and verse of this is exactly how sort of voodoo and witchcraft is practiced, although apparently it's relatively accurate. It's a less about saying, no, this is what it's like, as opposed to demonstrating a clash of cultures, because in The Wicker Man it's, you no know, staunch Christianity against paganism, whereas in Angel Heart it's the supernatural in general versus yeah. the sort of atheistic scepticism of Harry Angel. and. Johnny and Angel's sort of contact with Voodoo when he sort of goes to New Orleans is the first time that he starts entertaining the idea that Johnny Favourite wasn't just a sort of hoax to lead him on a merry goose chase. And that's the ironic thing about the film is that he, he starts believing in life after death, but it actually leads him to the devil rather than God. <laughs> so there's a sort of yeah. inversion of Christianity in there. Um, well, now I'll come on to the bit I think you're going to enjoy, which is the graphic violence. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Can't wait. Yeah, now it's, to some extent this is to be expected because like I say, hard-boiled fiction is very unsympathetic and very unsanitized yeah. about its prediction of violence, including sexual violence. And the film is an 18 certificate. I mean, when we talked about Pink Floyd, The Wall, you, you, said, you were amazed as to why it wasn't an 18. Yes. But this is definitely an 18 because all the stuff is very full. I mean, there is, the most... I mean, if you don't want to know all the various sort of things that go on, then just sort of turn halfway down for about 30 seconds. But the most sort of, not gut-wrenching, but the most full-on moment is where um, Mickey Rourke is observing a voodoo ceremony with um, 
the girl whom he suspects might be involved is practicing and a live chicken is sort of cut open and the blood spilled over her chest lovely but, but i should say that unlike um for instance the scene of the cow getting killed in apocalypse now it's all fake there is no animal cruelty involved in right. it you can read into the apocalypse now thing as much as you like i mean there's also the other sort of various scenes about you know, the, the various murders involved which you only see little bits of at the end and the rest is implied yeah. and the various sequences of harry angel being beaten up by mobsters which you know there's not much in the way of you know spitting out blood or anything like that yeah i mean it's not a sort of salacious shocker in the manner of hellraiser although that's a very interesting film it, the th I think the thing that makes it sort of, well, from your point of view, get away with the violence, in my point of view, sort of justify it, is that in the end, the really terrifying moments of Angel Heart, the myths that are essentially memorably scary as opposed to just, ugh, that's yeah. quite sort of, they are sort of image-driven or implied rather than sort of driven by how much gore can we put on the screen. Yeah. I mean, bear in mind, it was still the 80s, so you couldn't get away with everything on screen. Um, because... Alan Parker is a sort of, he comes out of sort of the art school background and then worked in commercials. He knows how to sort of, to use imagery in a very abstract way. And the very terrifying moments of the film are the ones which are sort of constructed recurring images, which sort of tap into something a bit more psychological. There's a recurring image in the film when Angel starts having these really vivid nightmares of an apartment window with an extractor fan, yeah. that image again, yeah. with a red window, and then it just, a man with a blood-curdling scream and every time it happens he wakes up but then again yes. that sort of feeds back into what happens at the end and there is a through line with pink floyd the war is um do you remember us discussing the thin ice sequence with bob geldoff drowning yes. in the swimming pool? yeah no and it's yeah. This, there is a scene in which um mickey rourke and lisa bonnet make love on a bed and there's water dripping from the ceiling because they're in a leaky apartment and it's the same thing of water slowly turning to blood yeah. and it's no it's a very interesting powerful image which sort of ties into the idea yeah. of you no know, damnation and so forth uh in terms of the performances i think it's the best thing mickey rourke has ever done i mean his his early career before he started doing things like a prayer for the dying and harley davidson and the marlboro man in which he was clearly just doing it for the money he was sort of like a young marlon brando in the sense that he had the very sort of he was a very good method actor and he had that sort of mumbly way of talking and a great charismatic screen presence if you haven't seen him in francis Ford coppola's rumblefish which is a sort of black and white film from the early 80s then that's something you should definitely check out um but he it sort of he takes the archetype of the disheveled flatfoot and sort of brings a lot more to the party i mean he's got a very sort of snarky sense of humor and just a deep world weariness on his face so you really believe in his character robert de niro is great and there are and as we've i think we've covered in some detail i think we're both sort of big fans of him and there are sort of very good supporting performances by um charlotte rampling who plays a fortune teller and lisa bonnet who i think this was her she was about 19 at the time, and it was her first film role, because the only thing she'd done prior to this was The Cosby Show. Oh. So it was a bit, <laughs> that of, was a a bit of a change, it was wasn't it? It was a jump, yes. <laughs> and apparently she got fired from that show, unfortunately, as it was, maybe as a result of doing this. Yeah. So, just to sum up, it does, like I say at the start, what Black Swan did for the Jalla. It does for the pulp thriller what Black Swan did for the Jallas of Dario Argento, which it says, you know, we've got all these little elements here, which have been done loads and loads of times before. Let's have some fun with them and sort of crank them up. It is intensely atmospheric and deeply unnerving there are moments in it which are a little bit ridiculous and it isn't the most consistent tone film in terms of tone but when it does work it works quite beautifully and it's this yeah. sort of breathtaking balance of sort of art faith and fear right. and it's it's thoroughly recommended right. so one final question because i'm looking here at the uh, the story of it based on an original novel mm -hmm. um but said the novel was entirely based in new york city whereas the film translates to new orleans yes you know what's the what's the effect of of the film version of it going away from new york 
I mean, I haven't read the novel, so I can't yeah. comment in terms of comparison. I think that the, the transition works because New York in the film is depicted as very much sort of steady, stable ground. It, you know, the, the interviews between Harry Angel and Lewis Cipher in New York are sort of very, very considered, very sort of safe. Yeah. Whereas New Orleans, because it's outside Angel's sort of normal jurisdiction and because it's you know, shot in a different way and because there's all sorts of stuff with voodoo going on, it's, it has a symbolic role in actually managing to unnerve the character and driving the mystery forward. Yeah. So I think the change works. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, good. Let's have a little break and then we'll uh, have a look at the new films. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. And it's Richard Dale and Daniel Mubby with you until 11 o'clock. And we've just been doing this week's uh, cult film, Angel Heart. Next week's is... The Clonus Horror, a little-known uh, 70s B-movie with uh, Rupert Graves in from Mission Impossible. Oh. That bit I got onto. I don't yeah. remember the film, but yes, I remember him. So that should be very interesting indeed. So uh, do tune in next Saturday. And a quick one, you may want to comment, at the Annick Playhouse, um, and that is this evening, we have got Animal Kingdom. Right, yeah, because that was um, Film of the Week a few uh, weeks ago. Yes, Ben Mendelsohn, Guy Pearce, Joel Edgerton and Simon Stapleton. Yeah, it's, um, it's a very interesting sort of low-budget Australian gangster film, and anything with Guy Pearce in is worth seeing. Um, I was watching Memento again a few weeks ago, and I just... I'd forgotten just how brilliant a presence he is. I mean, obviously, right. King's Speech, where he is one yeah. of the best things in the film. Yeah. So, recommended for people in Annick who yeah, want to go Yeah, absolutely. Along. Right. So, new films, Attack the Block. Okay, um, this is a sort of big release of the week. It actually opened on Wednesday, but this is its big sort of opening weekend. Debut film by Joe Cornish, who is one half of uh, comedy Joe, Adam and Joe, the other being uh, Adam Buxton. Were you familiar with their, their sort of comedy double act? Uh, no, I don't think I am. No, me neither especially. I mean, I, I like yeah. Adam Buxton, but I wasn't yeah. aware of Joe. So the story, in a nutshell, it, it's sort of deceptively simple because it's about a, a group of young people, a gang of youths, if you like, in <laughs> South London. Uh, and they, they're in a tower block and they have to defend their block when aliens invade. And As they do. Yeah, and that's about it. <laughs> um, so the poster of this film says, from the producers of Shaun of the Dead, which sets the bar pretty high, and that's sort of, that's sort of made all the more so by the presence of Nick Frost, who has a sort of supporting role. And generally speaking, it's very good. I mean, Joe Cornish is clearly a very promising director in the sense that he, yeah. sort of, he knows how to like films very well and he can, he can direct action. It's a very good trailer with sort of good special effects. And it harks back to all the sort of the great sort of science fiction, the sort of critter-based science fiction films of the late 70s and early 80s, you know, sort of the work of John Carpenter with Assault on Precinct 13 and Escape from New York. Uh, there's sort of hints of the Nostromo from Alien in the way that the tower block sort of yeah. looks you know, sort of grimily lit. And all those sort of things like, um, you know, Tremors and uh, Gremlins would be the most sort of commercially famous yeah. uh, of those, you know, films of creatures basically going mad, but the creatures are sort of symbolic for something political or otherwise. I do have a couple of reservations. It's it's sort of billed in some quarters as a horror comedy, which is very difficult to do. I mean, I don't think... Although The Evil Dead is very good, for me, the best horror comedy is still American Werewolf in London, and that's still John Landis's best film, because that just absolutely struck the balance between loads and loads and loads of gags, yeah. but also the werewolf transformation is still absolutely terrifying. Because isn't that film 30 years old this year? I, I think it thought, is, something like that. We shall yes. have to talk about that at some point. So... That That is a reservation, and I think also if you have, I mean, you laughed when I said the word youth in a sort of <laughs> very stereotypically middle-class way as it tried to be done with the kids, but I think if you have a sort of 
if you have an innate problem with the way that the youth of today speak, then you will get very quickly irritated. But on the other hand, I don't think either you or myself are the target audience of the film. And I suspect that sort of teenagers or sort of early people in their early 20s will sort of lap this up. Right. So and understand what they're saying. <laughs> well, not just understand it, but it's... <laughs> The actual sort of premise, which has a sort of reference to a lot of Spielberg's earlier, more playful works, it, it yeah. sort of taps into that, to that more sort of thing. I'm sounding really old talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like a recommended film, anyway. It is. It's a recommended film, but probably only for people under the age of, say, 35. Right. Right. Yes, well, that left me a few years ago. Okay, take me home tonight. Okay, a new film from Michael Dowes, whose only film um, of any note previously was a comedy called It's All Gone Pete Tong, with uh, Paul Kay in, which wasn't that good, um, starring Topher Grace and Anna Faris. Um, it's a high school reunion film, and the story is that Topher Grace is a 23-year-old who is eschewing his graduate's ambitions by sort of working in a down-and-out video store. Uh, one night his life changes when his old high school crush sort of wanders in and says there's going to be a big sort of reunion party at somebody's house would you like to come along and he thinks great i'm finally going to be able to get off with the girl that i sort of nearly got off with in high school but never yeah. sort of had the guts now then there are sort of when you're trying to make a high school film there are all sorts of different ways that you can do things i mean what's your favorite sort of high school reunion-ish sort of film Ooh, that is a question. Um, do you want some time to think about it? I may it? need some time to Well, think maybe about I'll that. list the various sort of options, because yes. you, you, I mean, to sort of barrel through these quickly, you've got the sort of, you can do it sort of very lightheartedly and nostalgic, like the work of John Hughes, so Breakfast Club and um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's also a great Francis Ford Coppola film called Peggy Sue Got Married, in which... Oh, that one I did like, yeah, yes. No, it's yes. the one with um, Kathleen Turner gets a bump on the head and it yeah. takes her back to high school and yeah. Nicolas Cage in one of his good yes. over-the-top performances. That, that is a very good film. Then you've got the more sort of independently spirited stuff in which high school sort of tangentially. There's a film called Gross Point Blank, which is John Cusack going back to his high school reunion, but the twist is he's a hitman and he's there yeah. to do a job, but he's also kind of hanging out with his old friends. Then you've got the sort of the adolescent gross-out stuff like Porky's and Lemon Popsicle, and I suppose Animal House, although that's more sort of university. It was, yeah, yeah. Yes, we, yeah. We, we both like Animal House a lot, yes. and that's subsequently in American Pie. Then you have the sort of the sort of very twisted scathing stuff like Carrie or Heathers, which are you no know, basically high school's an evil place and people are really nasty. And then I, I mean my I just sort of put this in for posterity, even though it's sort of more public school than high school. My favourite sort of high school reunion film is If, although that is a film which is much more about sort of revolution than sort of how bad it is to be at school. That uh, was a great, great film. That is an yes. amazing piece of work, famous, yes. you know, the famously uh, described by um, Simon Mayo, who said, yeah, you've seen If, it's just, you know, shooting between colour and black and white, and then they machine gun it at the end. <laughs> but that sort of doesn't do it very much justice. It's the great story about If, because there's all the sort of black and white arty sections in the middle of it, and... Um, classic example of someone reading too much into a film because when it came out in 68 something like that people yeah. were saying you know oh lindsay anderson very artistic director you know why is he shooting these in black and white and there must be some kind of artistic reason just ran out of color exactly just ran out <laughs> of film and it was yes. cheaper to shoot in those bits because of the line so in terms of take me home tonight it, in terms of the, the options i've just listed it does sort of list between the sort of the light-hearted john hughes end in which is you now high school's no, very sort of lovely and very sort of light-hearted. On the other hand, it wants to be sort of grossed out in the way of American Pie, and in the end, it doesn't really make up its mind. I think the performances are quite charming, and it, again, it isn't terrible. It just falls between a couple of stalls. Yeah. So it's a sort of... 
it's not um, oh horrible. It's just sort of mm, a bit disappointing. Yeah. We ought to talk more about If One Week. It's a very yeah. very twisted film. Yes, <laughs> very twisted. Have you seen the other instalments of the Mike Travis, the Mick Travis trilogy? Uh, lucky Man and Britannia Hospital. Saw a Lucky Man. Not Britannia Hospital not is Britannia. really twisted. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, very twisted films indeed. Yeah, I remember but Lindsay Anderson's an amazing director. Yes, so. yes. Right, Red Hills, the next one. Okay, it's an it's an Aussie western uh, from first time director Patrick Hughes, um, notable for um, the casting including Steve Bisley, who, if you remember the first program we did, Steve Bisley played Goose in Mad Max. Oh yes, right, yes. yes. Um, so no, he's still around after all these years. The story is um, you have a sheriff who, a young sheriff who is moved to a place called Red Hill with his pregnant wife. To start a family, but on his first day of duty, he's called up by the local law enforcer, a guy called Old Bill, uh, <laughs> yes, sort of reference there, yes. uh, to deal with a violent criminal called Jimmy Conway, who is seeking uh, revenge for a lifetime's imprisonment. Now, when I say Jimmy Conway, what do you think of? Uh, We've been talking about him a little bit earlier on. Oh, don't expect me to remember, okay. G. <laughs> Jimmy Conway's Robert De Niro's character in Goodfellas. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So there is a sort of yeah. reference to that, and there are connections with Mad Max. In terms of the, in terms of the film, it's nothing you haven't seen before. I mean, it is sort of like a mix between the proposition, in the sense that it's an Aussie western with sort of rough edges, and No Country for Old Men because it's a recent period setting. But it's you no, know, it's stylishly put together. The cast are pretty decent. I mean, Steve Bisley obviously brings sort of some kind of genre credibility to it. It's nothing remarkable, but as a debut effort, which is sort of stylishly shot, it's quite promising. So maybe he's a director to watch for the future. Right. Fascinating title for the next one, Holy Rollers. Yeah, it's it's an odd little thing. It's a, a first-time director, Kevin Ash, and it's a sort of drama starring Jesse Eisenberg, who has, you know, become a big star as a result of yeah. Social Network, most recently in Rio, which is still in the cinemas. Yeah. The story is apparently inspired by real events, which in the language of cinema means totally made up. Um, <laughs> It's about a community of Hasidic Jews in America who, in the 1990s, were involved in smuggling ecstasy from Europe to the USA. And in the film, uh, the story that sort of weaves that into the film is that Eisenberg plays uh, a guy who's had his bar mitzvah and he's trying to be sort of married off by his parents. Uh, he wants to get married to a girl in a rich family, but he isn't making the right impression, so he needs a bit more money. And he's introduced by his friend to a doctor, in inverted commas, who says, I can get you money, and then they get involved in drug smuggling. Um, there was a film by Bernard Rose, which came out last year, starring Reese Ephens, called Mr. Nice. I don't know if you caught that. No, I didn't. No, but that, that was about the real-life uh, story of dope smuggler Howard Marks, who, you know, started off running sort of dope again yeah. between Europe and the USA, but then allegedly got involved with MI6 and allegedly got involved with the IRA. And the problem with that film was that it, it was a potentially interesting story, but it didn't know... Firstly, how much it wanted you to sympathise with the characters, you know, saying on the one hand he's likeable, on the other hand he does drugs. Yeah. And on the other hand, it didn't know how much it wanted to to sort of show how bad the life of drugs are. I mean, there's also, not every drugs film has to be Requiem for a Dream. Not every film, including drugs, has to say, your life will be absolutely destroyed and it's going to be really hard. But... The problem is that you, if you're going to make a film about that subject matter, you have to decide very early on what sort of angle you're going to take, whether you're going yeah. to make Requiem for a Dream or whether you're going to make Carry On Dealing. <laughs> and, in and in the case of this, it's just sort of... It's like Mr. Nice in the sense that it doesn't really make up its mind. And Eisenberg is... He is just doing the social network shtick of sort of being awkward and talking fast. I mean, it's clearly a film that he did to sort of get away from being typecast as the nerdy computer kid. Yeah. But I think he needs to be a bit more careful with his role choices in future if he's not going to get sort of typecast. So, it's, 
it's flawed, is the short answer. Okay. Um, and the final one, Love Like Poison. Yeah, which is a French film. Uh, original title is Un Poison Violent, which if you're... So it should be Love Like Poisson, should it? I was going to say, if you mistranslate it, it can be called a violent fish. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, yeah, because it's in a poisson with two yeah. S as opposed to one. It's like the mistake in um, the original English translation of Cinderella by Charles Perrault. Um, in the English version, it's a glass slipper, but actually in all the original fairy tales, it's squirrel fur, and it's just because there's one extra R that he missed. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just no. It's probably as well it got into glass, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, in the original version of Cinderella, there's lots of sort of. I think in one of the German versions of Cinderella, the evil sisters are punished by dancing themselves to death in red hot yeah. iron boots. Yes. So maybe glad that didn't get in. Although uh, there's probably some people in Northumberland who quite like the idea of grey squirrel uh, slippers. So <laughs> the view: the only good grey squirrels are dead ones. So. <laughs> yes, I, 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 yeah, I remember writing articles about grey squirrels when I was at the Northumberland Gazette. Anyway, so the story of uh, un poison violente, as opposed to a violent fish, which we'll be calling it from now on. Um, there's a young girl called Anna who comes from home from Catholic boarding school to find that her father has just walked out on the family, just no longer interested. Uh, her mother is devastated and she develops a sort of strong relationship with a local priest while Anna kind of um, falls in, not falls in love obviously, but sort of develops a very strong platonic tie to her sort of bedridden elderly grandfather. Eventually she meets uh, a young boy, because they're both about 14, 15, and she falls desperately in love with him. The twist is the boy is, you no. Know, completely alienated from religion, has very little time for it at all. And as she, the more she falls in love with him, the more she sort of begins to question where her ties and her loyalties truly lie. You know, am I loyal to my family or should I believe in you know, what God tells me to do or should I just do what makes me happy? It's a very interesting work. I mean, it's a first-time writer-director again. I think her name's Catel Kilivert. Um, and she won a prize, at, uh, one of the jury prizes at Cannes last year. And now looking at, even looking at the trailer, it is... For a film that was made for so little money, it's yeah. it's quite impressively made. I mean, it's sort of you know slightly jerky camera, and but and, but the, the colours are really nice, and uh, they have a re-recording of Radiohead's "Creep" with a choral arrangement, which I think was used in Social Network, but I could be wrong. There's very good performances from the cast, particularly the two, the girl and the boy, who are very young. I think they were again just sort of fourteen, fifteen. It does deal with sort of very difficult subject matter, but no, chief amongst them being there's there is the implication of underage sex. Um, and, but it's an implication more than anything else, I should say. And it is absolutely an art house film. So if you find French cinema in general a bit pretentious, you will sit there bored. But if you're in the right frame of mind, if you like something which is a bit more adventurous in terms of the way it explores religion in a different way to Angel Heart, I think it is a very interesting piece of work. Hmm. Sound interesting. Yes. Right. And I think the Tyneside is showing it, so that's the place to catch it. Indeed. And a great place to go. I love that cinema. I love it's its pieces. Wonderful yeah. place, yes. It's, uh, so, five new films. What are your recommendations? Uh, like I said, a tag the block for anyone under the age of 35. For everyone else, love like poison. Right, okay. And we'll just a quick reminder of the other films to around this week, the big films, your recommendations? Yeah, uh, of the stuff still in the top ten, uh, Thor, if you want something a bit ridiculous, Water for Elephants, if you are a sort of fan of old-fashioned melodrama, and uh, Hannah, if you don't like either of those. Right, okay. Yes. Well, thanks very much for coming in. So, it's a pleasure, Richard. Right, so you're off to down south again, are you? Not not today, no, I've, no. Uh, I've got a couple of days grace before going off to York on Tuesday and then Barnsley on Thursday. You are getting to... To see the world. But I will be back on Saturday. You can Great. Be and it's uh, Clonus Horror. Yes. Otherwise known as Parts. Yes. 
It's, nice. It kind of goes under a few different names because it was very little seen when it came out. But Great. it's an interesting film. Good. Right, coming up later today, folks, we've got uh, Jerry G between 12 and 5. Laura Wilkinson is going to be on between 5 and 7. And now I'm going to have to try and read. So just say something for a moment while I stick my glasses on. Okay, um, just to say once again, if you missed the start of this programme, uh, the time side, which we've been talking about a little yeah. bit, are doing a special screening of Spirited Away by Hayao Miyazaki at 12 o'clock noon. So if you set off now, you should be able to get in just before the film starts. It's a really extraordinary animation. And then it's Go, a Buddy, a Go. Uh, Dean, our new presenter, is going to be on between 7 and 10. I'll have learnt that for next Saturday, so I won't need to... <laughs> Just whenever we get a new show on, a uh, new presenter, it takes me a week or two to uh, to learn who it is, and then I sort of don't need to look at the board again. But uh, that one, it's uh, and it's been. We have a little whiteboard here in the studio, and it's uh, got little circle, squiggly circle around it, which makes it even less readable. Yeah, Richard isn't just making this up as he goes along. No, although no. he does give that impression. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Anyway, I'll be back next uh, Saturday between 8 and 11. Danny will be here between 10 and 11. Before that, I'm actually doing the breakfast show next Friday morning between 7 and 9. So you can join me then if you want. Taking us out to the news. Well, seemed a very suitable one after what we've been talking about today. <music> Banana Rama, of course, and Robert De Niro's waiting. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.